Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Surkov. Elizabeth is an incredibly busy person right now, holding affiliations at three different institutions. She's a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking, as well as being a PhD student at Princeton University. She's written on a range of things taking place across the Middle East, with a particular focus on on events in Syria. She's written for the Carnegie Endowment on the Kurdish-Arab power struggle in northeastern Syria, and she wrote a wonderful wonderful piece in the New York Review of Books titled Between Regime and Rebels, a survey of Syria's Alawi sect. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about some uh, well, some pretty important issues that, as we were just talking about off air, haven't really received enough attention in, in the contemporary press, but also in, in scholarship. So there's a lot for us to cover, but I think, first of all, I, I must start by asking what got you interested in, in working in this field of, of research on the Middle East and doing a PhD and, and the reporting that you're doing. How did you get interested in this? Um, so I um, grew up uh, in Israel and uh, became interested uh, in the Middle East uh, as a teenager and then around 2009, I uh, realized that I could actually learn about the Middle East directly from people living uh, in, in countries across the region uh, through social media. I don't need to just read books. And basically started forming uh, relationships and friendships uh, with people across the region using Twitter and Facebook and message boards. Um, and uh, gradually this developed into know, long-term uh, friendships and that inform my research, as well as uh, in the case of Syria, uh, because a lot more Syrians joined the uh, social media after uh, the uprising started to keep up with the news, my network of contacts there gradually expanded uh, to be able to really cover the country uh, quite well. And I have contacts inside the country and also, of course, people who uh, became refugees throughout the conflict. Interesting. So there was nothing in particular about Syria prior to you uh, getting involved and interacting with, with Syrians. There was nothing in particular about Syria that, that was pulling you towards it. It was purely that that's what you were engaging with people on. Right. So I was, uh, I've been speaking to Syrians since 2009 uh, yeah, online. Sure. And the number of Syrians who were online was quite small as opposed to countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Lebanon. Um, in Syria, you know, uh, like everyone else, um, I was following closely the events uh, happening there when the uprising broke out. And I thought that it's truly an extraordinary event uh, because of the brutality of the regime that uh, people faced. I remember talking to Syrians before the uprising started and after uh, protesters mobilized in uh, in Egypt and in Tunisia and in Bahrain, and uh, Syrians were wondering, will the Arab Spring, you know, the so-called Arab Spring, will it reach us? Because we are a, a very different type of country with a very different regime. The regime's willingness to resort to force has been proven time and again. And um, therefore, when people did come out into the streets and 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 gathered, you know, in millions uh, in the streets. It was it was just something that I found to be so courageous and so uh, interesting. 
and uh, just began following it uh, more and more closely. And, and then as it devolved into a civil war, um, I kept up uh, with following it and forming uh, relations with people on the ground who were experiencing it. And I think also, uh, you know, kind of my, uh, my family history as a, as a Jew, I think um, there is this kind of sense of, um, you know, uh, Jews have this belief that, you know, we were kind of abandoned and left to be uh, killed in mass uh, when there was knowledge about, uh, you know, crimes perpetrated against uh, against us by the Nazis. And I think that we are seeing something, um, obviously not to the same scale, but still, you know, the sense of abandonment is something that is um, connects definitely uh, Jews and Syrians. And of course, the sense of victimhood, which is uh, highly unhealthy, uh, too, but uh, in in some ways is is justified. Sure. So that that piqued your interest in Syria, and then over over the years that followed, you just continued to to engage with them and and got more plugged into to journalism and research. Is that how it happened? Yeah, and uh, I began also traveling to neighboring countries, to um, to Jordan and to Turkey, and to Iraq, and then to Syria itself to to conduct my research and to meet some of the people uh, whom I got to know uh, online initially, uh, and really trying to uh, understand the dynamics uh, of the war uh, from the perspective of uh, of civilians and civilians experiencing it. Much of the research on Syria is based on contact with uh, elites uh, on all the sides of the war, and they offer a certain important perspective, uh, but obviously um, they miss a lot. So, for example, I conducted research in the span of uh, 17 months uh, interviewing over 100 Syrians living in rebel-held Syria that showed that support for the opposition is significantly decreased because of abuses of the rebels, because of uh, ceasefires that were imposed on them that made them uh, appear to be kind of foreign tools, uh, because of infighting between the factions. And this is something that if you don't speak to just average uh, Syrians who, you know, by average at this point in Syria, it means living way below the poverty line, um, but at the same time prioritizing having an internet connection because it's necessary for their survival to be alert to incoming fire, etc. If you don't speak to just average civilians, uh, you really miss a lot of, of the dynamics that are happening that uh, activists and uh, leaders of rebel groups or of political factions uh, have no interest uh, in divulging. Sure, yeah. Uh, one of the, the really interesting things that you did was was a piece published in the New York Review of Books where you spoke to uh, to a number of Alawi uh, members of the Alawi sect in Syria, and I thought that was that was a really interesting set of reflections and discussions with people about the Alawi experience, which, as you say, is is traditionally viewed through this elite type of analysis. But well, what your piece did was was based on on the ground interviews with uh, with individuals, just sort of the ordinary Alawi, as, as you put it. So can you tell people who've not read the piece what you were trying to do in that, please? So, uh, you know, my goal overall with my research is to uh, try and reflect the views of Syrians and humanize Syrians to each other as well. Um, and I think that there is a significant misunderstanding of the positioning of the Alawi community with regards to the war and with regards to the Assad regime. 
It is true that the Assad regime is dominated by members of the sect, and you know Bashar himself is an Alawi. Um, but at the same time, Alawi have not benefited from this regime financially, as is often perceived. And they've, you know, suffered immense losses to keep this regime in power. And I was trying to understand why would a community uh, do this? Why would people go and fight uh, for a regime that is essentially not benefiting them? And of course, um, sectarian fears are, are part of the story, and you know people are forced to to go and serve. That's that's another component of that. But I think that you know there are uh, the regime did deploy sectarian manipulation and sectarianize the the conflict and the perception of the protesters when the they first started. But then increasingly, as the war really kind of devolved into a, a sectarian civil war or a war that is fought along sectarian lines. Alawis really did, they, they have a, a justifiable fear of the military victory of the opposition at this stage. So um, I was trying to capture that, their genuine fear, some of it dr driven by, you know, kind of a sense of, of racism or sectarianism towards Sunnis and the belief that they are, you know, kind of inherently radical, uh, a sense that was reinforced in them, you know, throughout history. This is what they heard from their parents and grandparents and, of course, from the regime ruling over them, uh, but also really a sense that they lack better choices. They are deeply dissatisfied with the Assad regime, with the corruption that has only gotten worse uh, since the war started, uh, with their immense poverty. Uh, right now, uh, you know, the, the Syrian lira in which people are paid is crashing against the dollar. Everything is becoming more expensive. People really, really struggle to survive. They hold multiple jobs. They rely on support of uh, relatives who are abroad. Um, they, they are skipping meals, meals, like really there is immense poverty in this community. And this is, uh, you know, not commonly um, uh, thought about when discussing the, the community, how much, uh, how they perceive themselves and, and the extent of their own uh, suffering and how much they've lost uh, throughout this war. Yeah, that's a really important point. So can you just expand on that a little bit, do you think, Elizabeth, please? Particularly in light of the the process of sectarianization that took place in Syria, because it's, it seems to me that a lot of the, the reflections on sectarianization in Syria tend to look at the way in which the regime sectarianized Sunni groups through the, the processes that, that we're all familiar with. But there are implications for, for others who aren't necessarily sectarianized sort of the, the byproducts, if you will, of sectarianization, just as, as you're identifying with the Alawi. Right. So, you know, the, the war in Syria uh, witnessed multiple processes of sectarianization. Uh, and I'm borrowing here, you know, the term uh, popularized by Nader al-Hashemi and Danny Postel, whom you had on, on the podcast before. Um, basically, processes by which... Um, uh, elites, kind of uh, ethnic entrepreneurs, uh, both the Assad regime and, uh, for example, uh, Salafi preachers from the Gulf and uh, leaders of uh, rebel groups, um, basically encouraged uh, Syrians to view the conflict in sectarian terms to serve their own agenda. So the regime, um, when faced with a popular uprising, it was very important for it to keep its support base, to, to keep... Uh, both the uh, Sunni middle class that is, you know, kind of uh, uh, financially tied to the regime uh, and uh, its kind of 
ethnic or sectarian support base, uh, the Alawi community, the Druze community, uh, and other uh, minorities to keep them on its side uh, by repeatedly presenting the protesters who were initially unarmed and peaceful as uh, Salafis, as extremists, as people who will come and harm you. Uh, the, the regime and its uh, secret service engaged in uh, sectarian provocations. It would, for example, go and uh, slash tires in Alawi villages and tell them, you know, and the rumors would spread that, you know, this is being done uh, by uh, by the, the, the Sunnis, by the protesters. It distributed weapons to uh, communities in Homs, for example, to, to pro-regime communities, to the Alawi community, um, saying, you know, you need to defend yourself. Um, it would go to protests, uh, for example, uh, in uh, there protests in southern Damascus, uh, where uh, that would happen near uh, Shia neighborhoods, near Sayyida Zainab, and would tell the protesters, the, the, who were you know, largely Sunni, the Shia are coming, and then it would go to Shia areas and tell them the Sunnis are coming. So all of this was to kind of create these provocation and create the sense that uh, you know, minorities, even though they are uh, suffering from corruption, they are suffering from injustice, they are suffering from, um, you know, the, the, the economic uh, situation in Syria that led to, to the protest, all Syrians suffered from it equally, um, uh, except, you know, a small elite that is dominated by the, by the Alawi sect and, you know, some Sunnis as well. Um, in an effort to prevent the protest movement from cohering into a truly national movement, uh, the the regime uh, presented the protesters as Sunni and radical to keep the minorities uh, on its side and also the, the Sunni kind of elite uh, middle class. And it was quite successful in doing so. And at the same time, you know, particularly after the regime unleashed uh, really extreme violence toward protesters, mass arrest, torture, uh, uh, you know, families would receive bodies of, of those tortured to death, you know, with missing body parts. I mean, it was just um, such extreme violence. Uh, you, we saw, uh, you know, uh, preachers uh, in the Gulf, uh, some of them Syrian, like uh, Ar'ur, um, kind of uh, presenting the uprising, what is happening as an, an attack on Sunnis. And uh, gradually you saw the, um, the opposition militarize and then radicalize. Um, this also happened because of inflow of uh, donations initially from uh, Salafis, private citizens in the Gulf, and then uh, Gulf countries um, that went basically to the most effective groups that at this stage were already, uh, you know, Salafi and just straight up jihadi like uh, Al-Qaeda. Um, and this contributed really to kind of the emergence of, of uh, a, a war fought along sectarian lines, um, um, even if we take into account the fact that on the regime side, you know, uh, because of uh, the forced conscription, uh, many of those fighting on behalf of the regime are Sunni in the in the in the Syrian army. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know the the, the uprising and, and then the war in Syria is largely uh, perceived as um, a sectarian. But I think the the correct way would be to speak about it as sectarianized. Yeah, that, I think that's a really important point that that a number of scholars are making now and I think it's it's generally accepted that we're not dealing with a sectarian war but a sectarianized set of conflicts that have become increasingly complex and span a range of different political, social, cultural, economic, theological 
fields or, or arenas that that often coalesce around particular times, places and, and issues. Now, adding to this complexity, Elizabeth, is is the recent Turkish incursion into into northern Syria. And again, this is something that, that you've written about, but I wonder if you can talk us through a little bit about what's going on with with the Turkish incursion, the military incursion that started in early October. Why is it, well, why did it happen in the first place? What's what's going on with it? And, and where does it go from here, do you think? Right, so I think the Turkish role in Syria... Um, is, it's very important to discuss it when we bring up the issue of sectarianization because Turkey played a significant role in sectarianizing the conflict, particularly uh, uh, destroying or significantly harming relations between Arabs and Kurds. Um, so, you know, the the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces who are in control of northeastern Syria and the Syrian opposition, uh, which is lar- largely Sunni Arab, um, They've had a tense relationship historically. Uh, you know, the SDF and uh, the leading force behind it, the uh, the YPG uh, militia, the Kurdish militia, uh, have chosen a position of kind of neutrality or a third way of not aligning with the opposition and not aligning with the regime. And this was a source of tensions uh, between the Syrian uh, opposition and um, and the SDF. Um, but these tensions were significantly exacerbated when Turkey decided to uh, directly militarily intervene against the uh, YPG, uh, first in 2018, when uh, Turkey and Turkish-backed Syrian factions uh, invaded Afrin in northern Aleppo and uh, occupied the area. Uh, during this process, during the military campaign, most of the Kurdish population of the region fled. And since then, uh, Syrians were displaced from uh, formerly rebel-held pockets in eastern Ghouta, in Homs, in uh, Daraa, have settled uh, in Kurdish homes, uh, demographically changing the makeup of the area so that it is now no longer majority Kurdish. Uh, and now, with um, with this um, latest inva- invasion into northeastern Syria, the area between uh, Tel Abyad and uh, Ras um, these uh, campaigns um, really uh, harmed uh, relations between Arabs and Kurds um, due to uh, multiple reasons. Uh, first of all, we we saw that um, you know the Syrian opposition, the official bodies who are present in Turkey, uh, supported both offensives, uh, even though these areas are were not controlled by the Assad regime. They justified uh, the attack on them. Uh, kind of uh, saying that the YPG are terrorists or aligned with Assad, etc. In addition to this, um, you know, this force that um, the Turkey created to wage its campaigns on the ground, kind of the the, the cannon fodder that is doing most of the fighting, um, these uh, Turkish-backed factions, uh, some of them are fighters who were previously fought uh, in rebel groups, others were recruited directly to participate in the Fring campaign or uh, previous campaign that was carried out by these factions against ISIS in 2016, or uh, now ahead of the uh, offensive on um, on east of the Euphrates, uh, the so-called uh, Peace Spring operation. Um, these factions are um, 
have undergone significant indoctrination uh, by Turkey against uh, the SDF. Now, the uh, material that uh, pro-Turkish media um, uh, and uh, pro-Turkish uh, outlets are distributing is, you know, supposedly kind of targeting just the SDF alone and just the Yepige, meaning the armed force, not uh, civilians, not Kurdish civilians. Uh, but in reality, this propaganda, which involved the manufacturing of fake videos um, that purport to show abuses by the SDF against uh, Arabs and against Arab women in particular and certain tribes, for example, in Deir Zor, um, these, uh, this media and this propaganda and this uh, really kind of a relatively sophisticated campaign of, of fake videos, all of this contributed to uh, increasing hatred uh, towards uh, the, the SDF, towards uh, Kurds in general, among Arabs, among uh, Arab fighters who are participating in this offensive. Now, obviously, these Arab fighters have uh, the main reason that they are participating in this force uh, is um, for money. They are fighting because there are no other jobs and this is a way to get a salary. But then when you are you know, carrying a weapon and participating in fighting, you need a way to justify to yourself what you're doing. And these videos that sometimes are, in, are you know, quite blatantly fake um, serve as a justification that people cling on to to justify, you know, we are going to fight injustice. Um, and while it is true that uh, SDF carries out uh, violations, these videos, you know, documented people being torched alive or women being raped, things that really there, there is no record of them happening. There is no documentation by human rights groups of this happening. Uh, so Turkey has played an incredibly negative role uh, in, uh, you know, really harming intercommunal relations between Kurds and Arabs, which, which even before, you know, the uprising were quite, you know, there were uh, issues, there was racism, uh, there was mistrust uh, uh, to begin with. Um, but this, this war and the Turkish intervention in it and the propaganda effort that surrounded uh, the Turkish campaigns have been incredibly harmful. And I see this firsthand because, you know, I'm in WhatsApp groups uh, with uh, Syrians um, from all sides. Um, and I see that how these videos and how these messages are being spread and how they're increasing hatred and how they're then being used to justify, um, you know, invading uh, territory, taking over and displacing civilians from those areas, etc. So it sounds like you're, you're suggesting there's a, a process of sectarianization going on, but this time not between uh, religious sects, if you will, but along ethnic lines between Arab and, and Kurd. Right, exactly. So we are now, while the, the war, you know, was initially kind of, uh, you know, Sunnis versus minority, is was kind of this, the line across which, you know, the sectarianization occurred. Now we are seeing uh, even further harm to the social fabric of Syria with growing rifts uh, between uh, Arabs and Kurds. And and we see this also inside the, the Syrian opposition. Many Kurds supported this in opposition, participated in protests, were jailed for it, were tortured for it, were killed for participating uh, in, in the uprising against Assad. And now they find themselves in a situation where, you know, their former comrades are now justifying basically an invasion of areas where they live and displacement and human rights abuses 
that uh, these um, Turkish-backed factions are carrying out. And this is just, you know, heartbreaking to behold, to see how people who once got along and had a sense of a shared purpose and are all antagonistic to the Assad regime, now finding themselves on different sides of the divide because of a decision of essentially an external power, Turkey, to go and achieve its goals uh, uh, in Syria. You know, Turkey sees the, the YPG as basically the Syrian branch of the PKK, which has waged an armed insurgency against uh, Turkey for many years. And therefore, Turkey is determined to displace them for on the border, it did so in Efrain, and now it did so east of the east of the Euphrates. That's a really interesting point that you're making there, in in the sense that, in addition to seeing the process of sectarianization taking place along ethnic lines rather than religious lines, we're also seeing a third actor undertaking a process of sectarianization of one actor to a different set of audiences. So there's a an additional layer of complexity at play here than than what we have historically seen in the in the um, other examples of sectarianization across the the uprisings. Right. And and this is something that Turkey did in quite a methodical way when it decided to invade um, the area east of the Euphrates. Uh, several media outlets were set up uh, to begin this kind of propaganda campaign uh, against the SDF, repeatedly reporting about abuses by the SDF, some of them real, uh, some of them fake, and sharing these videos to increase hatred between people. And, and I would see these videos being shared and people saying, we will avenge us, we will not let you know the honor of our women, we will not let the blood of these people go to vain. And all of this is entirely fake. Some of the videos are really quite poorly made. But when you are um, a fighter who is participating in, in, in combat and you initially, you know, jo join the uh, join the, the wars, you know, began carrying weapons to fight the regime and you find yourself fighting on, on Turkey's behalf, you're constantly looking for ways to rationalize what you're doing. Uh, so therefore you grasp into onto any piece of information, whether it's credible or not, to justify what you're doing. Uh, and the same applies to uh, supporters of, of, you know, kind of the institutionalized opposition uh, of Syria, the uh, Etilaf or the Syrian interim government who are based in Turkey, they are no longer independent and they voiced uh, full-throated support for uh, both the invasion of Afrin and now the invasion uh, east of the Euphrates. It's a pretty devastating tale and and I fear that, that there's no easy way of, of getting back out of this um, it's it's difficult to unwind these processes of, of sectarianization, which is a worrying precedent, I think. It is, it is. And it's something that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, uh, particularly as I look forward to my PhD, to try and identify uh, kind of messaging or interventions that can help reduce uh, this hatred. And I've been speaking to a lot of Syrians who live in Syria and regime Haldarius, SDF Haldarius, and... Uh, opposition held areas how how do we bring people together and uh, the most people with whom I speak say this this is hopeless this is there's no point in trying to do this uh, we will never be unified again and I'm, and I'm hearing this from it's a unified uh, message from people who will 
if they will never be unified. Um, so it's it's quite disheartening. I think that maybe in the as long as the conflict remains, this will be quite challenging. Um, uh, you know, it now appears that the Assad regime will remain in power in Syria, and no dialogue uh, whatsoever will be possible uh, under its rule because only one narrative—the narrative that you know the regime was still the global conspiracy of, of terrorists, Mossad, MI6, uh, whatever—that's um, the only uh, narrative that is allowed. You cannot uh, sit around in a room and discuss the different kind of narratives, the different experiences, and come together to kind of a shared sense maybe of victimhood or shared sense of loss or um, anything that could unify uh, Syrians again. So this type of dialogue will not be possible in uh, future Syria under Assad. Uh, it is possible that something like this could happen in the diaspora, which is now unfortunately very large and is unlikely to decrease because, again, people will not be able to go back to their homes. So maybe this would be a place, uh, a place to start. Uh, with with refugees trying to 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 get people talking to get people to understand each other's perspectives. Right now, people are very focused on their own kind of sense of exclusive victimhood. We are the sole victims of all of this, ignoring the suffering of of other sides. And in dialogue with Syrians, one on one, some Syrians are willing to acknowledge that um, you know all sides have suffered, all sides have carried out. Uh, uh, human rights violations and war crime, but I'm interested in trying to understand how this can be reproduced on a on a larger scale. Sure, it sounds like it's a case for further exploration of ideas of desectarianization, albeit yeah. with incredibly high stakes. Elizabeth, we've taken up a great deal of your time, but thank you so much for talking to us today. I've really enjoyed it. I've I've learned a lot, although I'm I'm incredibly depressed about the future right now. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.